Well, uh, thanks for having me on the program, Luke. Um, I'm a form I was the former leader of the National Socialist Movement. That's correct. Um, and uh, I was I was involved from a very young age. I was uh, interested in National Socialism and uh, from a very young age because uh, my grandfather uh, fought in the Third Reich. So I had this fascination with that history. And unfortunately, it led me down that path. Uh, no, no, no one else is to blame but myself. But uh, unfortunately, that family history was uh, was was the entry gate for for me getting involved in that extremist movement. And, and what do you think it was about National Socialism that uh, triggered your in? Well, as, as far as the politics was concerned, that that all came later. That all came when I after I was involved. So it was more the military history, more the the family connection that. Uh, originally attracted me to it it was that uh you know basically that military history and, and all that it wasn't national socialism i didn't learn until after i joined the national socialist movement at about uh, 18 years old um around that time but i uh, before that i was radicalizing reading mein kampf at 16 and uh you know becoming involved in in these type of uh in that type of thinking and uh it was it was just a rabbit hole after that you know you went down the rabbit hole and and uh started becoming involved in in uh these type of activities unfortunately were you a bit of an adrenaline junkie as a teenager were you looking for excitement and thrills i i think so um i i think it's a lot of us when we were when we're at that age and and uh in that space in our life you know we're kind of uh uh looking for things like that for me i grew up in a in rural minnesota you know there wasn't a lot of things to do and all that and and there certainly wasn't a lot of people of different uh uh ethnic and and racial backgrounds um it just the area i grew up in it was mostly white and i uh, didn't have a lot of um interaction with people of other races with you know the exception of just very few that were in that area at the time so um you know that i i'm sure all the, all of those things uh play a part as well and was part of the attraction that it was widely regarded as like the most evil movement and one says this is evil and a contrarian part of you said, ah, oh, let me, let me check it out for myself. No, absolutely not. Actually. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a common misconception, Luke, you know, a lot of times there is people that join these movements that, uh, that want to be doing something bad or evil or, or things like that. But the, that's a common misconception. Most of the, in my experience, most of the people that, um, of that mindset, you know, that they're looking to join something that's bad to do something wrong or bad, um, psychologically there's some other issues there they could be sociopaths psychopaths um and i did encounter a number of those type of people over the many years that i was involved in this stuff but um i would not say that's the majority the majority of the people myself included um getting involved in these type of things we believed that we were doing something noble something good something honorable and i know that's a hard pill for a lot of people um outside that life to to understand or comprehend so i try to explain it in uh the most delicate or simple way as possible uh but no one wakes the best way i can explain it in simple terms is no one wakes up one day and says you know what i want to be the bad guy i want to be the bad guy i want to be hated i want to be part of this unpopular movement that's not that's not very common i mean that might fit into that sociopath or psychopath category but uh 
generally, generally speaking, people join these movements thinking that they're doing something good. So that's where, um, and we can get to that later in the conversation. But when we talk about disengaging and de-radicalization, that's an important thing to know in that in that strategy. Right. But uh, my question was, were you a contrarian? Not that you thought you were doing evil, but you must have heard that Mein Kampf and Nazism is really evil. And maybe you wanted to investigate to make your own moral determination. I'm sure you did not pursue National Socialism because you thought it evil. You, th you thought it good. But you must have been aware of the widespread opposition to Mein Kampf and to National Socialism. And so I'm wondering if it, it appealed to a contrarian uh, part of your nature. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying now. And, and yes, <clears throat> of course, in school and, and growing up and things like that, you heard that everyone in the schools and all that, we all heard that National Socialism was bad and evil and things like that. So I felt like um, I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to look into this. I'm going to explore different um, different avenues. And then you start getting into the Holocaust revisionism and all these different things. And all it takes is one thing down that uh, conspiracy theory rabbit hole, so to speak, where something grabs you and you go, you know what? I don't believe this. This is this isn't accurate what they're teaching is lies and this coming from a propagandist uh, later on from a propaganda standpoint you pick that kind of stuff apart and that's how you get the, i mean that's how conspiracy theories work you get that person in on w whether it's one particular thing or whether it's many things and then it just builds off of that so yes i, I certainly uh felt like i was investigating these things and but what it is it's confirmation bias so um you have two sets of 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 the facts one is the real facts but the other is what you believe to be the facts it's this other set of facts and it's not actually facts but you think it is and um that's confirmation bias so you go well uh the history book says that and we'll just use the holocaust for an example like the history books say the holocaust happened and and so on and so forth this other set of so-called facts that aren't actual facts but you believe they are say no it wasn't it wasn't accurate this is what really happened and automatically your mind goes you know what i'm going to believe that other set of facts the the wrong set now were you a contrarian prior to reading mein kampf did you enjoy triggering people did you enjoy argumentation uh, when you were a teenager hmm i i don't I don't think so. Um, I would say Mein Kampf really didn't have that profound of an effect on me. It was it was a hard read, especially at that age. I was reading it in small bits, like a few pages a day, and and uh, you know taking it all in. But it was it was quite boring, actually, especially um, the early parts of it. So that wasn't as big of that didn't hold of, as big of an effect on me. It wasn't until act, after I actually joined the movement. And then you're surrounded by this echo chamber. You're surrounded by everyone else thinking the same, the same thoughts. And, any, and if you had questioned something, everyone's in that bubble or behind those barriers in that echo chamber. And you just, it's just around and around and around. So if you ever question something, you quickly had three, four, five, 10, 20 people to refute that and go, no, no, you're wrong. So that's not how it works. So how did you become interested in joining the movement in the first place? And how did you go about it? So that interest, again, it came from that family history. And I always thought, you know, um, at, at a young age that it was I was fascinated by that. Um, 
so I thought to myself, you know, if there's groups like this around, that's that's something that I want to get involved in. I want to I want to join. I want to continue that that uh, that legacy, so to speak. Um, so I sought out the groups and back in those days. So I joined back in the early 1990s. That wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh, online stuff going on at that time you know, for the listeners. You know, that was before that was when you'd still look up things in books. And um, so I was, you know, reading books at the library, reading books, getting all the books I could get my hands on to, to learn about this stuff. And I came across a book that I believe was called 88 at the library. And it was written by, I believe it was, this was so long ago, but I believe it was probably written by sociologists that were studying the movement <clears throat> in the back of that book. Cause they were talking about different, different groups. And in the back of the book, all the groups that participated in the study or in this particular book had a little description about themselves and addresses where you could write them. So that was the first time that I'd saw, uh, ability to actually find these groups because in rural Minnesota there there wasn't anything like that. So my goal after writing to all these different groups was to find something that was the closest to the the German movement here in the United States and that's what led me to the National Socialist Movement. And uh, what was so enticing or fascinating about the the Nazi movement because I, I see like every guy I know loves to watch documentaries on Nazism. There's something about the uniforms the the whole gestalt of it that is just immediately fascinating to men in particular. But I, I was just wondering if you can articulate it better. As far as uh, I mean, the, the Nazi. Every guy I know loves to watch documentaries about Nazis. It's just inherently fascinating. But I can't quite put my finger on why it's so immediately fascinating. So aside from your family connection to the Nazis, can you articulate what was it that was so fascinating to you about uh, the Nazis in World War II? Sure. Um, <clears throat> for me, and I think for a lot of those people, um, a lot of it, some of it has to do with um, the symbology, the symbology, the symbolism, the discipline, the, the order of it all. Um, the, the Nazis were, were known for doing these, uh, big marches and, and putting on these, uh, demonstrations and then the symbolism too, you know, they picked specific symbols that go back in, in human history as powerful symbols. The swastika was the symbol of the sun, you know, there, and it's also used if, if it's flipped backwards, it's used in other cultures in, uh, Asia and other places as well. And even, uh, the indigenous uh, folks here in the United States, uh, it's, it's, these are ancient symbols. So there's power in those symbols and that's, that's why. I believe they utilized them. And I think that's probably uh, part of the draw to it is the symbology, the discipline, the, um, you know, all of it. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Hugo Boss, uh, the famous, uh, a lot of people get the cologne and, and all that. But uh, he was involved, uh, I believe, in, in uh, the S, making the SS uniforms even. Yeah. And then what was your experience once you went to, what, a, a meeting or you met an individual or how was your entry into the movement? Well, I wrote I wrote a bunch of different organizations at the time and, and I was going through the book and writing the ones that seemed to be the most interesting at first, trying to get newsletters and things like that. Um, couldn't really find anything in, in Minnesota. And finally, I wrote to a, a Christian identity group and uh, they had a, at the time, they had a book uh, store at the state fair in, in Minnesota. It was really, uh, nobody would know it was Christian identity. You walk up to it and you'd think it was just a church bookstore. 
Um, so they had a, a booth there. And when I went to visit them at the state fair, they had a list of the contacts uh, and the groups and stuff that were in the area. So after that, I wrote to, or uh, I, I, I wouldn't have wrote to them, but I, I called the hotline numbers that they had for the different groups at that time, which was uh, National Socialist Movement, uh, Hammerskins, uh, Nationalist Party, I believe, or Nationalist Movement, and maybe a Klan group. Um, but I contacted the groups in Minnesota, and I thought uh, the National Socialist Movement was the closest thing I could find to the original uh, German Party. So that's that's where I went. And so, what did it what did it do for you that that got you so involved? Well. Um, <clears throat> You know, and a lot of people ask over the years, you know, well, what did it do for you? Well, it, it brings to your life suffering, struggle. It doesn't do anything for you. It, it actually causes you, it, it causes you to ruin your life is, is really what it does for you. Um, there wasn't any gain or anything like that. And again, that's a, that's a misconception sometimes. And once in a while people would join us, well, what do I get if I join the movement? Well, um, blood, sweat, and tears, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you don't really get anything, but you have this belief that you're part of something that's greater than yourself. You think you're doing something good and noble. So you're willing to sacrifice just about anything for it. And I can uh, share a quick story on that, uh, of, uh, somebody that, uh, a young man that, uh, that we were working with trying to help get out of the movement and what we do now, um, and what I do now. And, uh, he said, you know, I was explaining, these are the things, some of the things that I've been through in my life. You don't want this life for you. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You're 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. Um, you know, you could die. You could go to prison. You could, this, this could be your, you know, the life that you've had. I've been very fortunate to, uh, uh, have lived through it. I know a lot of people that haven't. And his answer to me was at the time, he says, maybe I'll do like you did. I'll be in the movement for 25 plus years and then I'll, I'll just retire. And I said, man, you, you missed the entire point of what I just said. You probably won't make it. You probably won't get that far. That was the whole point. And then he says, he says, well, let's just, if the cause is right, if the cause that I'm fighting for is right, my life means nothing. The cause means everything. And I remember the hair on the back of my neck standing up because that's the exact same thing I would have said at that age uh, when I was involved in it is that uh, that mindset, that that feeling like your life doesn't mean anything and the cause means everything. And I told that story to another individual that uh, that it was out, that it come out around the time I did. And before I even finished the story, he says, brother, that is the exact same thing we would have said at that age. And I was like, that's why I'm telling you the story. So why do you think you didn't feel like your life was worth anything during during your teen years prior to joining the movement? I mean, people people must come from that place to be willing to sacrifice so much. So what do you think it was about your life that led you to feel like it wasn't worth anything? Well, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think it's that we didn't feel that our lives were worth anything. It was that the, the cause was that much more important. So no, I, I've always valued my life. I, I would think, you know, it's not like something I wanted to throw away or, or anything like that, but you looked at it through this sense that we, we looked at it through this sense of that 
if we lost our lives for the cause, you know, we'd be martyrs for the cause or it would be, you know, a sacrifice. It wasn't something anybody was like saying, you know what, I want to just throw my life away. It, it didn't work like that. It was, uh, um, you know, and I, I grew up in a decent family in, in a good household, you know, and um, I, I want to preface that by saying too, my family did not encourage, in fact, they highly discouraged me becoming involved in the movement. In fact, they tried very, very hard uh, to get me out for many, many years. So now were you popular in school? Did you have a girlfriend? Were you getting great grades? Could you look forward to a thriving career? I, I was doing all right in school until um, in, until I, I stopped I started skipping school and things like that, but I was, I was doing quite well in school, had girlfriends. Uh, that was never a problem. Um, you know, did pretty well. I, w I wouldn't say I was like popular or anything, but I wasn't bullied or, or picked on or anything like that either. So, um, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I've had fights and things like, like anybody else, but, um, um, you know, I had lots of opportunities in school, the school, um, in fact, for the senior, my senior year, um, I was doing so well in school. I had an opportunity to go to, uh, uh, I don't remember what it's called, what the, what the term is called, but where you go for your, uh, last year of school, your senior year, you can go on to college. And I had that all set up to go to be a, um, <clears throat> to learn, to be a disc jockey, to work at a, a radio station and all that. So I was going to go to school for, for that because music was always a passion of mine. I was in a band, uh, uh, later on and, and, uh, doing something with music was my passion. So I had a free year of school of college that I could have went to and I screwed it up by not showing up at school, skipping school, then eventually uh, getting thrown out of my parents' house for just disobeying the rules and, and things like that. So I had a little bit of a uh, more, I had a rebellious stage there for a bit. Now, if I look for a through line in your life, it seems like you were always primed for life in performance. So your work with National Socialism as a leader was in was a performance. Uh, you're also in performance now. This is not a negative term. I'm in performance also. But is that fair to say there is a through line? You were you were built and building for performance. That's 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 an interesting question. It's a good way, or it's a. Um... It's a, it's a unique or a different way of looking at it. But yeah, I've, I've heard that before, um, it, it, not in that exact wording, but in, in, similar, in a similar sense. Uh, someone had mentioned to me in the work that I'm doing now, they said, um, well, Jeff, you know, you've always been an activist. You know, you've always been out front and an activist. And I said, well, I, I, yeah, I guess that's right. That is a, a way to look at it. It's, it's just, you ca I carry a lot of guilt and shame from my past. Um, so I, a lot of times don't think of it that way, but, um, other people have said too, well, you know, from, uh, being in a band and being on stage to doing this and then speaking out and speaking out now, it does all, uh, it does all, uh, it is a very public, it is a very public life. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, George Lincoln Rockwell was also very skilled at performance. I mean, his, he chose like the Nazi party as his, his emblem and, and his name because it would attract the most attention. It, it was the most galvanizing. And, and so did you, did you experience some similarities with, with the life of George Lincoln Rockwell? Did you resonate with his experience? Yes. Yes. And reading his books and, and learning about 
<clears throat> excuse me, and learning about his life, um, very much so. Uh, there was a lot of similarities. You know, his his folks, I believe, he was involved in vaudeville performance, and like you said, uh, um, you know, he had a background in in uh, that. So, um, yeah, there there's certainly some similarities in that. Um, uh, Rockwell was assassinated. Um, fortunately in my life, I've had the opportunity to turn my life around and, and now do something good with that skill set, do something truly honorable and truly noble with, with the work I do today with Beyond Barriers. Now, you mentioned earlier that the movement gave you nothing, but I would offer to you that the, the movement gave you what was probably most the most important thing you were seeking, which was a mission it gave you importance and it gave you a mission. You were in charge of this movement and you were the guy for this movement and you were all over the news media and you had a lot of people looking up to you and you had a, a powerful role. And so I feel like the movement gave you purpose and mission and importance and camaraderie and community. And people, a lot of people really, really need these things. Any thoughts? Well, that is, that is accurate, and um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the term mission because that that is definitely it, and uh, in a lot of ways, and and it is a, a one thing that attracts a lot of people to the movement. When when I heard the initial question, like, what does it give you? Uh, you know, the initial reaction is it 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 doesn't give you anything. You know, it gives you. Uh, a lot of uh, bad experiences, but in that sense, uh, yes, the the movement is set up. A lot of the movements, the movement that I was part of, was set up to operate in a lot of ways like a a family unit. So that is one of the hardest things um, to break free from for a lot of people to break free from that because is, where's the you know what's the alternative for a lot of people? For some that are coming out, it might be their church, uh, their mosque, their synagogue, whatever um, religion. It might be a civic group, a social group. Um, it, it's different things for different people, but, um, yes, you know, the movement did provide that. So in a lot of times, um, there was different people that would get involved that would just be kind of like your loners or people that had trouble, uh, making friends or, or things like that. So that, that trajectory is certainly there for, for different people. Um, that's why you can't just say, well, everybody gets involved for this reason or for that reason, because there's so many different reasons that one can get involved in. So um, yes, of course, you know, um, those aspects uh, were there um, and, and they played a part in it and having that mission, that is a big, a big part of it because you wanted to, I can just speak for myself. I guess say, I wanted to be part of something, do something good uh, that was greater than myself. And that was, you know, going into the movement. I didn't uh, intend to be the leader or anything like that. That was never a goal of mine that just uh, I was appointed to do it and and took it on from there. And, and then you feel like you're stuck because you've dedicated all this time, energy, effort and, and all that to this to this cause. Um, and, and those are some of the complications uh, of getting out for different people. These are uh, a lot of complex feelings and things like that. So you're asking uh, really uh, intriguing, interesting questions. I think that a lot of people would be curious about. Yeah, I feel a sense of camaraderie with you because I've also had a disproportionate need for, for meaning and mission in my life. And, and I found it by uh, converting to Orthodox Judaism. But 
you know, I kind of understand the desire to sacrifice everything for a great overarching cause. And I think my theory is it comes primarily from a lack of normal human connection. Like normal people are not looking to sacrifice everything for a cause. Normal people don't have this extreme desire for mission and for meaning because they get meaning from their relationships, from their family and their friends. But you I'm going to assume you're just as for me, my family and my friends were not enough for me. I needed greater mission than that. I had, you know, 100 times the need for greater meaning and mission than the people I knew around me. Does that, does that resonate with you? I haven't really thought about it that way. That's an interesting way of looking at it, but having that mission, I, I think is, is important for a lot of people. And I know when I first, when I first left the movement, when I was out and processing everything um, before I started doing the work that I'm doing now. I mean, I knew I was going to, but during that time, during that processing time and that self-reflection and that period of not having a mission, that was hard as heck. That was so, um, especially in having to process things and, and the um, beating, beating yourself up over the past and, and things like that. So I can say when I got back on mission, which is what I'm doing now, having that mission um, certainly helpful, knowing that instead of ha spending all that time from the past of doing those wrong things, that now I was doing something truly noble that truly helps and unites all people. Um, that helped a lot. And that is something that we see with a lot of the, the people that we work with too, is they have uh, they're struggling at first to find that mission or to find their, their place in, in life. And for different people, it's different things. It could be a hobby. It could be, it could be anything, but, um, I, I don't know that it's, that it's necessarily the people that were around us growing up or, or before that time. I don't know if that's, I think for everybody it's different, but for me, I don't think it was that because I don't think, I don't feel like I lacked anything um in the in that time period i but i have always felt like having a sense of of purpose was important for whatever reason yeah, i think uh what we're talking about in part is is a result of evolutionary mismatch we, we evolved to live within a small tribe a clan of you know up to about 100 people but now you know that's how our species lived for tens of millions of years but now we're, we're thrust into a multicultural multiracial world which is not normal in human history. Normally, you lived within a clan, you lived and died with a clan in a certain specific uh, geographic area where your ancestors had lived. And now we're thrown into this multicultural, multiracial world of, of individuals. And many people feel that that lack of, of connection to a clan and, and that desperate need for camaraderie. And it's, it's a lot harder to find your clan and find your tribe in a multicultural, multiracial America. And I think one way that people find their tribe or find their clan is by joining movements such as the National Socialists of America. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think there's different ways to look at that. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people will find their tribe or their, or their clan or so to speak in, in, uh, sports even you know like you've got these people that are you know go to the you know detroit red wings game and that is their life you know and and they will fight the other team or or you know just get all crazy about their sports team and stuff like that and and that that does fall into that sort of tribalistic uh sense of things and in that case it's not it has nothing to do with race it has to do with you know they're all backing this team but that same that same mindset can be put into that and that sort of tribalism can uh 
go towards race. It can go towards uh, a religious group. We see it all the time where there's these, and even, even now in uh, the polarized society we live in here in the United States, between the Democrats and the Republicans, you have this, this huge divide and this huge polarization between them. Um, so I, I think that can be applied across the board. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily uh, directed specifically at the multiracial society or, or anything like that. So you you were fighting for the white race at the same time you're a man you must have been attracted to non-white women how did you think about that or how did you deal with that contradiction between say your your basic human nature to get with women and your commitment to the white race That's that's a good question I don't think anybody's ever asked that one uh, uh publicly but um you know um boy where do I even start on that one um yeah, there was a lot of irony and a lot of uh, uh, contradiction. Contradiction would be the, the the right word there, because of course, as as a man, I'm finding different women attractive and things like that, and uh, uh, more often than not, uh, passing up uh, those those opportunities. Or if I did date uh, a girl of another uh, background or something like that, it wasn't it was something that you didn't you didn't talk about. You know that you didn't tell your your brothers and sisters or, or in the movement or things like that. So, um, you know, and there's, there's people that did that stuff all the, all the time. Um, it's very, it's a life of, of many contradictions for a lot of people. And, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really ironic. Uh, a lot of those things, but the, the, the big picture of that, of something like that is, is people are shutting themselves off to opportunities to meet people, um, and not just in the dating sense, but I mean, just in friendship senses and things like that. I, I remember over the years, um, different people inviting me over for dinner or trying to befriend me or or things like that, especially in the earlier years I was involved in the movement. I wouldn't have nothing to do with them. How many wonderful uh, people did I block out of my life? And, and I know everybody in the movement does that. I mean, all, all the time it happens. So it's 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 sad. I mean, at the same time, many American Nazi leaders have had non-white girlfriends and lovers and, and even like a Jewish wife. It's it's uh, an interesting contradiction. I, I know some of these cases. I don't name drop or anything like that, um, but I, I definitely know more than a handful of cases like that. Yeah. So, yeah, even even Nazis are human. <laughs> like the yeah. uh, the penis contradicts many an, an ideology. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the the penis never lies. Now, it was your human connections that led you out of national socialism. It wasn't that you read a particular book. It was right. your your friendship with an, an Orthodox Jew in Detroit. Your friendship with a black musician. Uh, tell me more about the the human connections that that uh, shifted you. So the human connections, especially there, I have a, a few, uh, there's a, there's so many, cause it didn't happen all at once. You know, a lot of people get this idea, well, he met him or her or, or someone met that person and boom, their life changed. And that can happen. Um, but it typically doesn't, it typically is a series of events. So for me, the, and again, the irony, so um, being involved as the, the national leader for so many years, I did a lot of media, a lot of press. It was just part of the day-to-day -day job, so to speak. So I got contacted to do, this was in 2016, I got contacted to 
uh, appear in a documentary, which was nothing new, nothing uh, out of the normal. Um, and they said, you know, uh, we'd like you to come and film, et cetera, et cetera. Normally, I would do background. I would check to see who the, who the company was, what, uh, you know, for security reasons and also just out of curiosity's sake. And for whatever reason, at this particular time, I didn't do that. I didn't do the due diligence of, of looking into the background. So I really didn't even know who I was meeting for this film. And it happened to be uh, Mr. Daryl Davis. So for the uh, listeners uh, or viewers that don't know who Daryl Davis is, he's a famous black musician. He played with Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and, and many, many more people. He lights the piano keys on fire. He's incredible. Well, I didn't even know I was meeting with him. So I'm sitting outside of this uh, this restaurant and he comes up and he says, well, you must be Jeff Scoop. And I was, who are you? He says, I'm, I'm the guy you're meeting today. I'm Daryl Davis. And I'm like, oh, well, nice to meet you. I still did. it didn't register. Who is this guy? You know, um, so we sat down. We we uh, were having uh, conversations. And uh, what I really liked about Daryl, well, before that. What he said to me when in the conversation, now I'm on film, I'm on camera, and I'm thinking I'm, gonna, I'm doing my job for the movement. I'm going to, you know, uh, say my part and get out whatever I can in the, in the press uh, today. And, um, you know, we're talking and, and um, he tells me this story about when he was a boy, a uh, young man, uh, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And he was in the Boy Scouts and how adults and people were throwing rocks at him because he was the only black child in that boy scout parade uh that day and how he had to um you know mention it to his parents what had happened to him and they said he's like i don't understand why they didn't why they don't like the boy scouts and his parents said daryl they were throwing rocks at you because you're black and he says that doesn't make sense he says they don't know me why would they throw rocks at me so that was that's daryl's story and that was the question that was posed to him was uh, or that he had wondered for all those years is how can someone hate me that doesn't know me? And he's sitting across from me and he's telling me this story about, about that. And I'm thinking at the time about my own kids and, and what, what would I do if my child had come home and told me that they were being pelted with rocks because they were white or because of whatever reason, how would I react? And I'm not going to answer how I, I would react, you know, but it wouldn't it wouldn't have been good. Um, and I and I thought about that because something about that humanistic, that vulnerability, Daryl showing that vulnerability and talking about how that affected him as a child, that tapped into something that re helped retap into my humanity and my empathy and compassion and all all of those emotions. Where at the time it, it hit me, it hit me, but I I shove that stuff back down deep inside and tried not to let it affect me. And within six months of that show or a year max, I met a Muslim filmmaker by the name of Dia Khan and a similar trajectory came out during that. But now I only had met Daryl just that day uh, pr prior to that time. But with Dia Khan, I spent a lot of time filming uh, for her uh, award-winning film, uh, Emmy award-winning film, white right meeting the enemy because i was one of the main protagonists in that show um and uh i got to know her quite well and in that there's a part in that show and i don't remember all what they showed um but some of this you can see in the film is um she's sitting across from me and she's she's telling me about how 
hatred affected her as a child, similar to what Daryl did and how that made her feel. And Luke, I could feel her pain. I could like a vibe or an energy that was in the air. I could feel it. I could see it in her face. I, and I felt it. And that was like getting kicked in the chest by a horse at the time. And that for me was the beginning of the end of my time in the movement because I did stay, I still stayed a while after that, but by the end of that film, and of course this part wasn't in the film, but at the end of the film, when we parted, you know, Dia and I hugged and, um, you know, the ongoing joke through, you know, it, off camera was she's like a bratty little sister because she was always pushing me pushing me. Let's, let's film some more, you know, after eight hours, let's, let's do some more. Let's do some more. So I said, you're like a bratty little sister. So at the end, it was like, we hugged and it's like, you know, you have a brother for life. I mean, I was still in the movement at the time and we just kind of laughed. She's like, we're not supposed to be friends. We're not supposed to even get along. Like this is, this is really uh, weird, but um, cool, you know? And, and it was that human connection, that human connection is, uh, is, is, part of what we we utilize today to to reach people that are in these groups uh what did you learn about the news media both from being interviewed as a nazi and being interviewed as someone trying to bring about racial reconciliation in what sense well you've been interviewed a lot of times many most people have never been interviewed so you you got to see how the sausage is made for, for the news most people don't get that experience so uh, you would have the interview and then you'd see an article come out. And uh, what did you learn from, from all these experiences? Oh, an, incre an incredible, a lot, uh, an incredible amount. I can tell you um, <clears throat> from my time in the movement, even you might sit down and I did this with history channel and, and uh, countless uh, news sources from around the world and things like that. Uh, you might see a little snippet on the television or, or in the paper or whatever, um, like a few sentences or a few minutes at the most, usually it's seconds. And uh, the people don't realize they had you sitting there for three hours, four hours, or, you know, usually at least an hour or two, you know, answering questions. And uh, they only show a very small amount. So it had over the years uh, uh, in the movement, I got to the point where I knew like if I got angry in an interview on purpose, you know, like if I got angry or I was saying certain things, I could say in my head, that's the quote they're going to use. And almost every time, um, you know, that's those are the quotes that they would use during that time, because uh, the most radical or the most angry thing that you said uh, during that time, that's you know, it's, it's sensationalism. That's how the media works. They want something that's, that's attention grabbing and, and stuff like that. So, um, uh, unfortunately I got quite good at that, uh, during that time. But, um, now, uh, on this side of things, it's, it's, uh, different as well. You know, uh, at first it was a bit of a struggle and, and, um, you know, there's people that, that doubt formers, the former extremists, especially someone like myself that had, uh, so many years in, you know, there's, there's people that, uh, that don't want to accept that or that, uh, are skeptical of change and things like that. So, um, you know, of course it's a challenge and everything, but, uh, you know, you have to walk in other people's shoes and I try to not get upset about it or angry about it because if I was on the other side, looking at someone, 
like myself, I might be skeptical too. So, uh, you know, I, I try to be fair as possible in everything that I do and try to understand things from every angle and, and be understanding and, and kind about that and not get frustrated. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that the media frequently just uses people as props, that they have a story that they want to tell, and then they just take uh, those snippets from their interview with you that fulfill the story they already want to tell. They're not really listening to you. They're just using you as a, a pop, as a puppet, as a, as a prop. What do you think? Unfortunately, uh, that that can, I I don't want to tar and feather the the whole media as as uh, as a whole because some of, some of the different outlets do a really good job of of telling the stories, um, but I have been the victim of hit pieces before, um, and and it especially is obnoxious when you spend an inordinate amount of time with someone, and then a story comes out and they're quoting people that you've never met that don't know you or that met you you know for 30 minutes once or twice as like experts on your life. Like they know your story and then, um, you know, something else, so, you know, some other spin comes out to fit a narrative. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. So I, I do think that, uh, uh, I I've been critical of the media over, over different things, but I try not to paint it all with the same broad brush because that's the life I used to live was painting groups of people with a, a, a whole wrong brush. And, and I don't uh, feel it's fair to do that to people. So uh, I think it's, uh, you've got negative things with the media, but you also have positive things. So uh, you have a very different approach and a very different vibe from a, a Christian Piccolini. What do you think about Christian? I know you guys were friendly at one time and then fell out. He, he wanted you to go about your recovery from anti-racism in a, in a whole different way. Uh, what do you think of Christian's work? You know, I try not to be critical. Uh, I know he's he's went out of his way to, you know, say some very very false and damaging things uh, about me in in the past, and uh, I think that just speaks to, uh, speaks to his character, uh, what kind of uh, a character he is, and and uh, uh, why he would do that to another uh, former extremist that's that's coming out of that life. But um, I don't. Uh, I don't speak ill uh, of anybody publicly or anything like that, including him. And, and uh, uh, we have different ways of, of approaching uh, this space. And, and I can say the work I do is incredibly effective. Um, we've beyond barriers and, and the work that I've done, we've helped countless people walk out of that life. And um, I just say, let the work speak for itself. And uh, um one thing I, I haven't done and one thing I won't do is I'm no, no, I'm no one's puppet. No one can, no one's going to say, well, you have to do this. You should do this, or you should fit a certain political narrative as a nonprofit 501 C three for beyond barriers. We are nonpartisan. And that is one of the reasons that we've been so successful on helping other people get out is because a lot of people and, and not all formers do this, but some formers do this. They'll say, when you get out, you know, you should go to the other side. You should go to the far left. And if a person wants to go to the left, that's fine. If they want to stay on the right, that's fine, too. It doesn't matter. Be somewhere in here in, in the middle, moderate. You can be right, be left. But don't be on those very far extremes of the extreme left or the extreme right. And uh, I think that's that's what um, it's probably held me back in a lot of in a lot of uh, ways and, and on, a, on a personal 
on a personal uh, level where if I embraced a certain uh, political side, I'd probably have a lot more opportunities and things like that. But I, I can't I can't do that. It's not it doesn't work. First of all, if I just want to be a person out there spewing another political narrative, how easy would that be to do? I, I did that for years and years and years. I know it like the back of my hand. But what I'm trying to do is make a change and try to help people. And that's what I'm doing. So um, unfortunately, it doesn't fit certain people's political narratives. And that's tough because, uh, you know, I'm not for sale. Uh, did you investigate the psychological origins of your journey to Nazism and then the journey out of it? Yes. You know, and, that, and that's an ongoing... Um, that's an ongoing thing, but uh, we are involved in, in different things that have uh, uh, we've we've partnered up with uh, Rand Corporation and helped in uh, their study on former extremists and, you know, what had gotten people into the movement, what had gotten people out. And uh, we look at not just far right extremism, but far left extremism, religious extremism. Um, all kinds of things like that. So the psychological factors are quite interesting and the stuff we learn more about all the time. But uh, uh, yes, I have, I've processed a lot of that and, and uh, learned a whole lot. But have you gone to therapy yourself? Um, I've, I've uh, you know, we do have uh, people that are uh, therapists and things like that on our, our team. So I, I have done a little bit of that, but I did a lot of it myself. A lot of it was... Uh, uh, self-processing things and spending a lot of time on that different techniques. But I, I have talked to a few people. Yes. Hmm. And so what are you doing today? What does tell me more about your organization beyond barriers and how it works? So Beyond Barriers is a nonprofit 501c3 organization, and uh, we work in the counter extremism de-radicalization space. So um, we've got people that reach out to us, um, you know, for help leaving extreme organizations. And, uh, you know, we try to, you know, we listen, we use our relational dialogue program, which is something that, that uh, we've put together that gives people the skill set, basically, um, to, sh to sum that up in a nutshell, what it is and how it works, sort of like how I explained how Dia and Daryl were able to reach me. These are some of the same uh, procedures or some of the same tactics that we use with other people and giving them ways, other ways of viewing things. Um, when someone comes to you and tells you, you know, this is what I believe, et cetera, et cetera. You don't say you're wrong. Um, if you say you're wrong and you attack that person or you say they're stupid or, or they're, you know, they're going to go into defense mode automatically. So you, you don't do it that way. You offer them, you listen to them, but then you offer up other other ways of looking at it or, or question it in a polite or kind way and say, well, what do you think about this? Or, well, what about this? And just give them things to think about. They're not going to, you know, they might get defensive at first, but um, typically by the time they've contacted us, they're already starting to question things and it's, it's not as difficult um, as one might imagine as it would be to like, uh, to try that tactic on somebody that's, that's deeply embedded in that movement. Um, it takes sometimes showing those vulnerabilities and like what Daryl and Dia had done um, to tap into that. Because I feel like when you get involved in these extremist organizations, you kind of you've lost your connection with humanity in a lot of ways. You've lost that ability to see beyond your tribe or beyond the people that are in your 
behind the barriers with you, you're not able to see that. So this helps like open up your heart and your mind and get you back to that experience and that humanity and not blocking those, uh, those emotions and those feelings out. So we feel like that is a, a helpful way of going about it. So we work on that. We do counter messaging um, videos. We do a podcast, uh, Beyond Barriers podcast. We do a lot of different things and then, you know, publicly speaking out and, and things like that. But I think what makes us different and the reason, the reason why I started Beyond Barriers, because my initial thought was I wanted to be part of somebody else's organization but um, and and learn as much as I as much as I could, and I did learn from a number of other formers and people that are out that that have been really wonderful. T. M. Garrett was one uh, former Al Qaeda uh, guy. Uh, Jesse Morton with Light Upon Light. Uh, he was another person that was very supportive early on. Um, <clears throat> some of these guys that had went through that struggle themselves that had had been there and understood that. So I, I learned a lot from them. But what it was with a lot of the people, when I first went public, I started with my own website, jeffscoop.com, and all these people were reaching out. I couldn't keep up with it, so I needed to assemble a team. And one of the things a lot of them were saying was that they won't talk to a lot of the other formers, or and I'm not, again, I won't name names, but they'll say, well, if you're working with so-and-so, or if that person is, is how you do things, I don't want to talk to you or I used to talk to this former, but now they're with Antifa or they're retweeting Antifa stuff, um, et cetera, et cetera. I won't talk to them because they're the enemy, I, you know, but I'll talk to you because you're, you're not political. You're there in the middle. You're, you're not being political. So that's why I think it's so incredibly important because it wasn't just like one or two. It was like literally one after another that were saying these kind of things. So I thought, you know what, we need to do this in a different way than, than the other groups are doing it. And we need to really make sure our team are staying as, as uh, nonpartisan as possible. And it's hard to do when you're in a highly politicized uh, society and time. But um, if you want to be effective, in my opinion, and that's not to take away anything from anyone else, like maybe their methods work with other people. But what I've seen works is the method that we're utilizing and the way we're doing it and not, not being politically oriented. And uh, what kept you from being a, a criminal and a mass murderer when you were in the National Socialist Movement? Did you even feel an inclination in that direction? That's a good question. Um, I, I don't think that that was something that I ever wanted to do. You know, like it wasn't something that I felt like killing people was was a was a good thing to do it just that didn't make sense uh sense to me uh, if there was a war or something or if, if i was attacked you know i would defend myself but um doing something like that even when i was in the movement over the years anytime there was a, a mass killing or somebody uh doing terrible things it it didn't sit right with me it just uh, the the way I process that in a way a lot of people process those things. They um, some some people would say, "Oh, so and so is a martyr." And again, I won't name the people that have done that because we don't want to give them uh, that acknowledgement. But um, like people that have done the mass shootings and things like that, there's some people that look at that as martyrdom. Um, but a lot of the other people, myself included, even when I was there we couldn't make sense of it. We'd always say like, "Oh, that's hurting the movement." That guy 
that individual must have gone crazy. That was just the, the simple way of looking at it. It's like, oh, they lost their mind. Uh, that's why they did that. They're crazy. That's really bad for the movement. And the first order of business at that time was always uh, when someone did something like that was look at the membership roles, make sure that person wasn't a, a member because that would have been bad for the organization. Not uh, just like this moral obligation that it was wrong, but that it would be bad for the organization. And, and I'm ashamed to say that now, but that's that's how it was viewed, that you put the, the organization and the cause before anything else. Uh, do you still make money from NSM 88 records? No, absolutely not. No. Now, when you were in the National Socialist Movement, you must have wondered why do so many criminally inclined and psychopathic people become attracted to our movement? And how did you answer that in your own mind? Ooh. There, there was a... Hmm. You are asking the tough questions. There, there was that element. There was those people. But um, as, as I said, and I unfortunately in that aspect of my life during that period of time, I probably encountered more of them than I would on a norm, any normal person would in a, a normal everyday life um, outside of extremism. So there is a, a probably a that would be an interesting question for the researchers is to see if you know what the percentage is of those type of individuals in extremist movements are. Um, again, I don't think it's the majority by any means um, from my personal experience, but we did encounter those. And typically when those type of people would uh, come across my path, they made me very nervous because I, I can't, uh, I don't know if anybody can, but I can't read a sociopath or a psychopath. There's, it's, it's uh, they're, they're blank. They're blank in their in their headspace. They're very blank. Their eyes are are blank. There's something missing there. Um, and uh, anybody that I can't read uh, makes me uncomfortable. It makes me a little nervous because I'm not able to read their uh, what they're thinking or anything like that. So um, I usually kept a distance from those people. But at the same time, if they weren't saying anything illegal or, or anything like that, they would be tolerated in the organization. Um, and they would, you know, the officers or whoever was in charge of that particular branch of the party would just be said, you know, keep an eye on so-and-so, uh, they seem a little off, you know, or, um, I don't know yet and, uh, what, what's going on with them. So, um, other times people would come and suggest illegal activities or, or things like that. Like, why don't we go do this? Or why don't we go do that? And, um, in the, in the NSM, my uh, take on people like that was one warning, because sometimes uh, these are young people that are trying to show off to the leadership. They think that they're going to impress you by saying those things. Um, other times they were people that were sent in by the authorities or some uh, organization that's monitoring groups like that. So uh, we felt like those type of individuals were a liability to the organization and we didn't want them around. So if they were trying to show off, they got their one warning. Um, if they did it again, they were thrown out. It was very strict policy in that sense, but um, not all of the organizations operate that way. Now, I would explain it with the simple phrase, only marginalized people become attracted to marginalized movements. To have a national socialist movement in an Anglo country like the United States it means that you're going to be marginalized because the country fought against national socialism in World War II. So a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, 
a, a CEO of, of a company is not going to be attracted to a national socialist ideology because they'd lose everything that they have. So only people with essentially nothing to lose are going to be attracted to a national socialist movement in America. What do you think? Typically, you're right. Typically, um, the the majority of the people that were involved in it and from the in the early days, it, back in the 90s, it was all blue collar like and poor, blue collar and poor that changed later, um, closer into the into the 2000s that changed where some middle class were starting to feel a economic squeeze or things like that. And we were attracting um, people from the middle class as well. But the wealthy never um at least in the organization that that i was a part of there was no uh very wealthy people they weren't interested in in uh that type of thing so um but like what you said about uh people with nothing to lose and marginalized people uh, i i think that's that's pretty accurate and um those also can make some of the most dangerous extremists because someone with nothing to uh, or that feels like they have nothing to lose uh, can be incredibly dangerous as well. So um, tapping into that marginalization, those people that um, uh, extremists like to blame others for their problems and for their lack of uh, success or, or different things like that, that's pretty common. So um, if you have somebody that's, that's struggling, um, and you, and of course I didn't think about all these things at the time, but this is some of the stuff that comes out when you're processing it and you asked about the psychological aspects of it. And you think back and you, and, uh, to that, to that time period, absolutely. Like those people were, were targeted and were brought in and, uh, the movement offered them, uh, someone to blame you know, uh, and you hear it all the time. Well, we don't have this because of the Jews. We don't have this because of the blacks or things are this way because of this race or that race. And it, it's not accurate, but that's how they feel. And if you can exploit those things, you see propagandists doing it all the time. Now, what did you think about the rise of the alt-right? When did you first start hearing about the alt-right? Um... I can't pinpoint the exact year that was, but I know in some of the last uh, the last few years that I was involved in the movement, the alt right was coming up, and it was a uh, it was a big thing. But uh, I personally, I didn't get along with the alt right. I didn't uh, care for uh, most of the people that were involved in in that. I saw a lot of uh, it was very different. So I was what I was involved with what you would call the uh, what was called the hard right. Um, a lot of the people on the alt-right uh, and, and the hard-right would clash. They'd say it would be over optics and things like that. A lot of times alt-right people were picking on the optics of the hard-right people. But um, I think it was a lot deeper than that for a lot of the people on the hard-right. And I'm just speaking from my own uh, opinion at that time. What I saw in the alt-right was a lot of uh, anti-woman behavior, uh, almost like incels. I, I know they have incels there too, but what you, what they call incels, a lot of incel-like behavior, a lot of women hating uh, and uh, strange, really strange uh, behavior in that sense. And some uh, what the hard-right would have considered hypocrisy where uh, there was people in the alt-right that were Jewish, that were homosexual. Um, and of course, I've got no issues with Jews and homosexuals now, but when I was in the movement, um, th they were not accepted. So um, 
we on the hard right saw that as, as a bit of hypocrisy to allow those people to have anything to do with it. So there was there was a lot of schisms and, and uh, disagreements and, and infighting, I guess you could call it. I, I That's probably the best way to explain it between those sides. Uh, did you ever struggle with drug or alcohol abuse? Um, drugs, no. Um, alcohol, yes. Um, I, I guess you could, ex I guess you could say I had, I'd been, uh, an alcoholic for quite some time, uh, but I kicked that back in early 2008 and stopped drinking then during my time in the movement because it was, uh, I was becoming dependent on it where I needed it to go to sleep at night, basically. And, um, so I kicked that habit in 2008. Um, thankfully, you know, now I can, I can have a drink socially or anything like that afterwards, but, uh, um, and now I don't really have much of a taste for it, but, uh, it, it was definitely a problem before, you know, 2007 going back that alcohol was definitely a problem. And what about drugs? Did you dabble in drugs? No. And how, how did you kick alcohol willpower? Just, just willpower. Yeah. And uh, how prevalent were drug and alcohol problems in the national socialist movement? Alcohol was a big problem. I, I think um, a lot of the after parties and stuff were <clears throat> centered around drinking drugs. Not so much. Um, the, when we found people that were doing drugs or using drugs, at events and things like that, people would get beat up, you know, um, or thrown out of the organization or both. Um, it wasn't tolerated. Now, in the last few years where restrictions were loosening up on marijuana and things like that, um, if, if we smelled it or something like that, sometimes you just kind of look the other way. Um, but it was it was definitely uh, not something that was encouraged. But um, there was different times where you'd have, and this varies from group to group, because there was different times that we'd be at events. And um, I remember, you know, someone coming up and saying, look, there was dirty needles, there was or needles on the ground near somebody's car, and they weren't there earlier. So there was somebody there that was that was doing drugs. And, uh, you know, we don't know from what group or anything like that, but things like that would happen. Um you know, over the years, but, uh, that, that varied from, from group to group, but alcohol, I would say across the boards is a huge, huge problem in, in, uh, uh, the movement. Uh, what were the major feuds you got into when you're leading the national socialist movement? There would be feuds, um, even in, in the hard right groups, there'd be feuds between the different organizations. Um, there was a few times within the organization um, over the years, not in quite a few years, but quite a few years back, there was different um, attempts to, you know, take me out of the, of the leadership position or, or uh, things like that, um, going back to like the late 90s, maybe the early 2000s, but quite a long time back, there was a few attempts like that. And uh, um, sometimes those got violent. Um, and other times there was schisms between other organizations. These groups on the, on the far right, hard right, whatever you want to call it, and alt right, they don't get along even with each other. So um, even even in those in those instances, and then sometimes you'd have alliances and things where groups would come together. And I was always one of those people that was trying to get the different groups to work together. Um, and, uh, it would be successful for a little bit and then 
different schisms would happen. And sometimes groups that were friends all of a sudden became enemies. And, uh, you know, in groups like the Ku Klux Klan, um, it was very common for everybody to call everybody that somebody that was thrown out a fed or an informant. Um, in some cases it's true, but, um, more often than not, it wasn't true. It was just, you know, somebody didn't get along for whatever reason. It could be somebody said a wrong thing, challenged the leader, stole somebody's girlfriend, stupid things, um, that would cause those schisms. And, and then all of a sudden you'd have a new group form up and, you know, with two or three people and, and even in the NSM, uh, a number of times over the years, a l couple little splits happened like that where a few guys would leave and try to form their own thing. And, and it was just very common. I mean, you're, you're looking at a hyper volatile environment um, in all these uh, different guys that already guys and gals that don't get along with um, other races and all this stuff. And then you put them all together and then they want to fight with each other, too. So. Um, at the time it, it was just, uh, it was very frustrating, but, um, uh, hard to process why, cause you would think, and even from the outside looking in, you would think these groups, they're so marginalized as it is, you would think that they would all back each other up and, and get along and things like that. And it's not that way, even if it appears that it is, it's temporary typically, or it's, it's for the public's view because, um, they, they don't get along. So did you get into any major feuds when you were in the National Socialist Movement? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And who were your feuds mainly with and what were they mainly about? Hmm. That's, uh, uh, I don't like to, I don't really like to name anybody specifically, but I, I can just say typically it was um, the biggest feuds I didn't have a lot of feuds actually to come, to come to think of it. Not like some of the groups did. Uh, one time I was sued by a guy that we had thrown out. Um, and I'm not going to name him either, but I, I was the organization and I was sued by him and we had to uh, hire a lawyer and we won that court case. But that's not even something that most people know about because any kind of drama or things like that, um, I tried my best to keep that from the public eye because I felt like it wasn't, good for our recruitment efforts. So um, the organization I was part of didn't do a lot of public feuding, but there was, there was a few times where there was uh, over the years I can think of where uh, a member or several members would be attacked by another organization, you know, and there'd be violence and, and uh, things like that. So there was, there was some, there was some violence over the years. Yeah. Did you notice class conflicts between the hard right and the alt right? Because many of the leaders of the alt right, such as Richard Spencer, come from an upper class background, while the hard right was much more a working class movement. A hundred percent. If you name them, that's that's one thing. So <laughs> it's, I'm not naming them. But yeah, he, he is an example of, of somebody that um, is very, very different than the people on the hard right. And uh, a lot of the rhetoric at the time was is, is somebody uh, that looked down on people and was condescending in that way from that classicist, uh, uh, viewpoint. Um, that's not somebody that I ever met when I was in the movement, but I knew about him and there was other people that I knew from other organizations that knew about him and some of the stories that they would tell it, it, uh, it, to me, it sounded like a classic case of, uh, severe narcissism 
and um, and that whole idea of looking down on the working class, it just never sat right with me because uh, uh, in the organization that I was part of, everybody was working class or poor. So someone coming in, uh, anyone coming and looking down on people like that, uh, that particular individual wouldn't have lasted five minutes in most of the hard right groups because he probably would have been beat up. Um, and I'm not saying that to be mean or to be funny or anything like that. It's just the truth. That's you, you don't treat people that way. Um, and you don't talk to people that way in, in those groups, uh, in those hard right groups, respect was huge. And just by the way you handled yourself and the way you talked, talk to others, uh, could mean, I mean, it was, it was a big deal. So. Uh, did you feel a surge of power and energy flipping sea kyles and, and wearing Nazi regalia and the like? I suppose so. Um, that That's uh, something I think one of the trappings of it that a lot of people liked. And, and I think um, <clears throat> anytime you're in a group and uh, people are believing the same way and things like that, I, I suppose in, in a lot of ways, that's a, a sense of power. I don't, I don't think it's anything I would uh, say is a good thing, but um, it was one of the, um, it was something that uh, I, I think would be fair, fair to say. Yeah, I mean, it gives people an identity. And so identity, I think, would give a sense of, of power and, and energy. Just, just being a rootless cosmopolitan uh, is not particularly inspiring. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's better, there's obviously, I think there's better ways that, uh, that one can find that inspiration and, and things like that. I mean, I think if we're dividing people and uh, pitting, pitting each other, pitting one another against one another, I think uh, uniting under something more, more positive, like America uh, as a whole, as a country, I, I think is more noble and more honorable. You notice any similarities between racist activists and anti-racist activists? That's a great question. I, I wish more people would ask that one, but um, yes, absolutely. In fact, um, when I was in the movement, I I never believed that the anti-racist activists, or I would always dismiss them as being not holding up to their beliefs that they were that they were weak and and things like that. Um, but that was an inaccurate portrayal. Um, Learning what I've known after, since leaving the movement and actually working with people that we've helped to get out of extreme far left organizations as well. And people, a couple of people actually, that were in the far right and in the far left. And, and believe me, those are uh, some of the most interesting cases to study. And these guys are not public. Eric Stryker. Uh, <laughs> Both a communist and a fascist, but go ahead. Really, really? Yeah. Okay, I, I didn't know that. I, I know the name, but I I, uh, I didn't know that. But yes, there is there is some. I, I can think of a couple other ones actually, uh, but not too many are are public uh, that have that have come out. And um, just hearing their stories and and comparing them and and hearing what they say, there's a lot of similarities actually. Um, the politics are very different, but the social structures and the belief systems as far as how uh, they want to get to their goals and things like that are very similar. So um, I look at uh, extremism isn't just the far right. It can also be the far left. It can also be religious. It can be all sorts of things. And I think anyone that's wanting to paint it as, as just one directional is probably uh, serving their own political agenda and shouldn't be doing this kind of work. Yeah, it seems, yeah it seems that activists in general treat people as fodder. 
for, yeah. for a greater cause. And uh, what role has religion played in your life? For me personally, I, I don't really, uh, I don't really uh, want to speak too much about about religion. For me personally, I can say, um, as, as a general uh, principle, religion is a very good thing for a lot of people. As long as, once again, you don't take it to the extremes. You know, you're not uh, like becoming a, a Islamist extremist where you're chopping off somebody's head uh, and joining ISIS or Al Qaeda or something like that. I don't think that's a good. Uh, trajectory but uh um uh, religion in a, in a moderate sense or in a sense of of uh change or, or helping people through their lives uh we see it all the time and and there's uh there's there's some cases that i know where <clears throat> religion has helped to bring people out uh, of the movement so um i i think it's a good thing for me it's it's uh i, I think it's important that people have that um if, if it uh if religion helps them in their lives uh i think it's a really good thing i take it by what you're saying that you have not been religious but you recognize when you're in the national socialist movement that that was a way in for some people uh, i'm talking about even being out like i think it's i mean yes it, when I was in the movement, we utilized religion um, in a lot of ways because there, in, in the group that I was in, about 40, 45 percent were uh, heathen, pagan, and about 40, 45 percent were Christian of some uh, denomination or sort, and then uh, 5, 10 percent, uh, 10 percent other religions as well. Um, so it wasn't a main focus, but uh, for some people it was, and some organizations are based all around religion. But even being out, I'm saying that uh, religion can be important for people, and I'm not saying it's not important for me. It's just something that I don't, I don't really talk about publicly because I, I work again with Christians, pagans, and uh, Jews, and and Muslims, and all kinds of different. Uh, religious backgrounds and i i think they're all equally as important as as one another so yeah hitler would send the ss to church before elections to try to show that they were you know completely compatible with christianity but it's interesting in the national socialist and white nationalist movements they're all led intellectually and usually practically by atheists but most of the adherents have have a connection to christianity so there's quite a dichotomy between the atheist leaders and the rank and file who disproportionately tend to be Christian. Well, I guess I really hadn't thought about it, but it it it, it depends again because some of the some of the leaders uh, were, were very religious, and others others are, are not at all. Or uh, so, yeah. And uh, did you end up having any connection or any knowledge, personal connection with any of the the people who committed murder in the in the name of white nationalism? Unfortunately, um, unfortunately, yes. In, in some in some sense, yes. I I had uh, <clears throat> I had met uh, uh, the individual that. Uh, had uh did the mass shooting in uh california in a um jewish school and oh. I, yeah uh and i actually met one of the children that was that was shot in that uh his name's josh step stepakoff and uh he was shot twice in that in that attack as a child 
Uh, he's grown up now um, and he's a activist and he was on our podcast. If anybody wants to check it out, it's an incredible story. Um, uh, but uh, unfortunately I had met the, the man that had uh, done that and other people that had done terrible things uh, as well. Yeah. So in your final years in national socialism, you were billing your movement as a white civil rights movement. But uh, what about a genuine white civil rights movement? Do you think America would benefit from a genuine white civil rights movement? Well, yeah, the last couple of years that I was that I was involved, I was billing the National Socialist Movement as a white civil rights organization, which uh, I refer to that that time now as trying to put lipstick on a pig. Um, what, you know, you can put lipstick on a pig, but the pig's not going to be any prettier. Um, and that's what I was, uh, trying to do. And, and, uh, to, to put some background on that, I was de-radicalizing at the, at the time and I didn't realize it. So that's, that was my way of trying to rationalize what I was doing by saying, you know, I want to do something good. Like, let's not make this about hate. Let's make it a white civil rights group. Of course that didn't work, but, and I'm glad that I'm out. Uh, But that was my thought process at that time was, you know, like, let's make this so it's not quite as hateful, but you, you you can't make a group like the national socialist movement into something like that. But to answer your question, um, I think all, all people have the, the right to be proud of their ethnic group, their heritage and things like that. Um, would I be part of something like that uh, today? No, because I, I was part of something that was just focusing on white people before. And I don't feel like um, that's a good thing. And I, I think it divides people. So but, you know, would I go to like a, a German fest for my German uh, heritage or something? Sure, of course. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But um, one thing I now borrow this uh, phrase from Daryl Davis, um, when you talk about white pride, black pride, brown pride, whatever, um, Daryl has a, a, a statement where he says, you know, it's okay to have all that pride, but shouldn't you be when you have pride in something, it should be something you've accomplished. So whether it's like, you know, you got your doctorate or you won the marathon or, you know, you're the star basketball player or whatever it is that you do, that you've had this accomplishment. That's something to be proud of. We can't help how we were born, whether we were born white, black, brown, yellow, whatever. Uh, we can't, none of us can help that. It was our parents' choice, you know, so um, to have pride in that is that's not something that we've accomplished. If that's like your life's uh, uh, greatest achievement, you got work to do. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of uh, I, I like the phrase because I think that's an, it's an uh, interesting way of looking at it. Like it's not something you've accomplished. So sure, you can have it. It's not necessarily harmful. But when it be, it only becomes harmful when you when it becomes hatred or when you start holding other people down and. Uh, it's not just white people that can do that. That can be applied across the boards. And, and that's one thing that I'll say that's probably different than, than others is that uh, um, that's not just something that white people that do that can harm others. Other people can do it too. All people can, can be harmful in that manner. Hmm. What did you find were the most effective ways to recruit people into national socialism? Hmm. <clears throat> All forms of recruitment were utilized uh, in in those years. Everything from music to video games to passing out flyers to podcasts to uh, video messaging. Um, I think some of the more powerful 
you know, that's a question I've been asked that a lot of times before, and I'm kind of hesitant to like go into the details of what tactics work the best because there's people um, that are in the movement that watch uh, that watch things that uh, when we speak about things like this, uh, those of us that got out, um, and I don't really want to give them the exact tactics that uh, that I utilized in those in those years to help them grow. Uh, so I don't want to get into the details of it, but I can say that um, to explain, to answer your question the best I can without giving away those details was that pretty much every method that you can imagine was utilized um, in, in the propaganda toolbox. Well, I would think that the, the most effective way to recruit would be to tap into people's feelings of victimization. Like everybody can find reasons to feel victimized. But for some people, their, their victimization is uh, of great importance. And if you can tap into, into ways that you persuade them that they're being discriminated against, that they're being shafted, that they're being disrespected, I would think that would be a powerful way to recruit for, for any, any nationalist-type movement. For sure, for sure. A lot, of, a lot of the messaging does have to do with that. It's always, it's, there's, there's always a scapegoat. There's always somebody to blame. And, and, uh, and those anti-Semitic tropes and things like that that the movement uses uh, from going way back, you know, I mean, that's historically uh, that, that tactic has been used uh, heavily to, to place the blame on somebody. Everybody's looking for an answer. And if you have provide a scapegoat, unfortunately, uh, that's... Yes. Were you able to maintain friends uh, during all these dramatic uh, life changes that, that you've made from from normal kid to leader of the National Socialist Movement to now uh, uh, an activist to, to de-radicalize people in all these whips of changes? Have you been able to maintain friends? You mean like, may, like keep some of the same friends from yes. way back? Yeah. Uh, surprisingly, yes. In, in, uh, in a few cases, a lot. I mean, obviously, when I left the movement, I, I gave up uh, a lot of what I had considered to be friends, um, or they gave up me in that sense, you know. Because uh, I, I, a lot of people when they leave, uh, it's okay to leave in those sense, in that sense. But when you speak out against it, uh, they, they don't like that. They view that as uh, betraying the cause in a lot of ways. And even though I don't attack uh, the individuals or say uh, bad things about that, unless you're, you've done something really horrible, of course, then I would condemn that 100%. But I try not to condemn the individuals, but rather condemn the ideology and uh, condemn things that are, that are harmful to humanity. So in, in, I think in some sense, I was able to maintain some friendships uh, through those actions because I'm not, uh, vilifying others, but, uh, for the most part, uh, a lot of that has changed, you know, a lot of, uh, you don't, uh, uh, maintain that. And even going way, way, way back, you know, like before I joined the movement, uh, there was a number of people that have reached out, uh, from back then, uh, that talk with me, that talk with me now. So that's pretty cool too. So, um, I've, I've gained a whole, whole lot of, uh, new friends and maintained a few from from before and a lot of people walked out with me when i left so and and continue to walk out to this day so i'm reconnecting with a lot of people that i did know back in the movement that are out and then there's some when i got out that contacted and said hey uh, you know i've been out for this long and and at the time a lot of times when people quit 
they wouldn't tell us they would just disappear so um reconnecting with some of those folks and finding out that they had their own stories and reasons why they got out and it just took me longer to catch up to them in that sense now i've seen you say in, in some of your public testimony and in various interviews that anyone could be recruited to extremism and i'd argue with you that only those with nothing to lose can be recruited someone who's happily married with kids and a thriving career is not going to go join an extremist movement well, and we did uh, we did talk about that a little bit, and and uh, for the most part, uh, you know, when I say anybody could be recruited, uh, I, I guess I wasn't thinking about like somebody that's wealthy or, or or doing doing well because there, like I said, there was so few of those, almost none, involved in the group that I was a part of or in the hard right. Um, so it's not a hundred percent accurate to say anybody could be recruited, but. Um, uh, a lot of people could be recruited into these type of into these type of uh, movements. It doesn't just fit inside uh, a, a box. It's it's not that easy to say. Well, it's just this group of people. But yes, you're you're right in the sense of people with uh, nothing to lose and people that are looking for answers and and that are really struggling are much much easier to recruit um, into a extremist movement because of that whole not having anything really to lose or, or feeling like, you know, they want more for a lot of it, it, it. I say this too, but a lot of it comes from a good place. It's not a good, it's not a good thing, but it's coming from a good place. Like, Hey, I'm going to join this. I'm going to do this because I want a better future for my children. So that's the way we reach a lot of them, you know, to get out as well, because being involved and being active in this stuff, is not good for your children. It's not good for your family. And most of the families and people that are involved in it have suffered greatly for being, uh, for being involved in this stuff. How much blame do you give yourself for recruiting people? And I'm just going to give you an opinion to stimulate discussion. I, I wouldn't give you more than 5% blame for any one individual who gets recruited because people have to take responsibility for making that decision on their own. You're not taking people who are otherwise headed to medical school and, you know, messing with their mind and sending them into national socialism. You are meeting a need that people have to feel important and, and to feel alive. So, so I would, I would offer to you that I, I wouldn't give you more than 5% blame quote unquote for recruiting because people have to come from, come for themselves from themselves. Any thoughts? Well, obviously, you know, I mean, I, I do feel um, a lot of guilt for, for the time that I spent there and for the people that I recruited. And, and um, you know, that's I think that's part of the process. And it is it is something that uh, um, I'm ashamed of, you know, to, to this day. And it's something that, uh, you know, the work I do now, I feel like helps. <clears throat> excuse me, I, I feel like it helps in some way repair some of the damage from the past. But uh, you're also right in the sense that there there is personal responsibility. I didn't make anybody do any of these things. Um, uh, you know, so I, I also understand that aspect of it. And everybody has to take personal responsibility. That's that's the first, uh, uh, I mean, as, to, as far as being a human being, you know, we all have choices in life and things like that. Nobody was holding a gun to to me to join. No one was holding a gun to anybody else to join. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, you have to take personal responsibility as well in, in, in that sense. But, um, 
Um, I think in, in some ways it's like remembering, remembering stuff from the past so you don't repeat it and learning from your mistakes is important, but also living and carrying all the guilt and shame and things like that. And I know, I know people that do that and it's not good for their mental health. And, um, it's been folks from the African-American community and from the Jewish community specifically that have, uh, early on when I started speaking out in 2019, um, some of those individuals had told me, they said, you need to stop beating yourself up over the past, you know, and it's not good for your mental health. I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not. No, I'm not. And yes, you are, Jeff. We see it. You know, you are doing it. Stop. What you're doing now is what matters. Focus on that. On the, I don't see the person you were before. I see the person that you are now. So and, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that in a lot of ways, because as I, as I said, I do know other formers that carry that so strongly that you see it affects them in a, um, in a really negative way. And it uh, knocks their own self-esteem down and their, and their, and their mission. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy. I think you have to remember that and you have to process it and work through it. But if you, if you carry that in the front and that's, that's your motivation, it's, it's, uh, it's doomed. It's, it's not a good, it's not a good healthy way to live. How do you feel now, as opposed to when you're the leader of the national socialist movement, are you more relaxed? Are you more at ease in life? Are you, you sleep better? Are you happier? Or do you, do you miss the excitement and the, the adrenaline rush? How, how do you feel now, as opposed to when you were the leader of the NSM? Well, when I was the leader of the NSM, it was like, <clears throat> Every day you're at war with the world. So I got used to all those years being in this really high stress environment and uh, being able to process things uh, in, in a way that um, I don't recommend it. Uh, I, most people can't process the kind of stress and uh, high stress environment like that. And, and uh, so I guess you could say in a sense, that's a, a skill set that I learned there. I don't know if it's a if it's good or not, but, um, that particular skill set, what I did being involved was not good, but I'm saying, um, learning how to operate under high stress was, uh, it can be a good thing in some ways, uh, trying to find the silver lining here as, as we're uh, having the conversation. But, um, now life is much better. Uh, of course, you know, there's still stresses with speaking out and, uh, and doing this work and then revisiting a lot of these things is, is, uh, is really hard on people. But, um, knowing that, uh, you're doing something good and noble and that you're helping others, uh, for me that, that helps with the motivation and that that's, uh, I put, all that energy that I put into what I did in the past, I put into the work that I'm doing now. So uh, the lack of motivation, I, I have lots of motivation. I've just flipped that skill set, used reverse osmosis in, in a sense, and am utilizing that skill set for good now. So um, I'm happy. I, I'm definitely happy. It's not as stressful now as it as it was uh, before. And, and I would highly recommend it to anybody that's thinking about getting out. It's a, there's a better life out there for, uh, for everyone if they're just willing to grasp it. And it, it takes courage, it takes strength, and it takes, uh, um, you know, being willing to change and put and do the work. It's not, uh, you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen, but it's, it's well worth it.
And did you have to learn social skills in your journey the last two and a half years out, out, out of the movement? Did you have to learn to read social cues or did you already have that down? I, I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. I, I think I... Uh, social skills, social cues. So, for example, you were, you were the, the opposite of social skills when you were leader of the National Socialist Movement. You were... You're active in something that was regarded as highly socially undesirable. So you must have had to put on a lot of body armor and psychic armor to do what you were doing because you were going against all social cues. You weren't getting you know, positive social cues from society for what you were doing. So you spent 25 plus years going against society. Now, the last two and a half years, were you able to just effortlessly switch to being a pro-social person who was who was uh you know reading social cues and and reacting appropriately with social skills or did you have to learn oh i see what you mean now <clears throat> yeah um being in the movement and the best way i can explain this is um in a lot of ways you um you shut down your like emotions because it's considered um, and this is like all unwritten rules. Like nobody's, nobody tells you this stuff. Nobody's writing this down. You're not reading it anywhere, but when you're in the movement, um, you just don't show emotions. Um, at least in the movement that I was involved in, you didn't show emotions. You weren't emotional. <clears throat> and for example, I was at an event one time and, um, was in a meeting, <clears throat> excuse me. I was in a meeting and uh, somebody came in the door and they're like, you know, sir, I need you right now. Like it's an emergency. And so I go outside with the guy. I'm like, cause his face was all white, you know, like pale. And he was very, very nervous. And I was like, what in the world is going on? Why are you interrupting me while I'm sitting here with, uh, you know, in a meeting? And uh, he says, you got to come this other individual, another, not going to name anybody, but this other group member is crying and I don't know what to do. You know, I said, what? Like, you just didn't, you didn't encounter that. And, um, you know, he'd gotten into some kind of argument with one of the other guys and was, was crying. And this guy panicked and like ran to come and get me. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't know what to do with the crying man. You know, <laughs> you know, so like that, you know, it's not funny, but like, that's one example of, of that. And I can, I can even, I can explain another one where, um, a family member that, that I was close to had passed away and um, my kid's mother had said, the kids, the kids uh, see you as human or see you as, or it's the first time they've ever seen you show emotion. And, and I remember getting a little agitated by that at the time. Like, what do you mean? You know, like they don't see me as a human being or something like, what do you mean? I, I don't show emotion like I, like dad's human, you know, almost it wasn't it wasn't those exact words, but it was something like that. And it was and that caused me to really, really reflect and think about that, because it's not like I indoctrinated my kids into this movement, but how I fathered them, how I raised them. There was no emotion shown for uh, in a lot of ways it, uh, for a very, very long time there. And that's, that's something that uh, is, is tough to reckon with because um, they, they didn't see that. So how, so, so that, I think that's, that's where you're going with the question yeah. is that those social skills in that sense are, are very, are very, um, 
guarded or, or like you said it's like it's like having an armor on so you don't show those emotions because those emotions were considered like weakness you know like uh like the guy that broke down and was crying like people could have mocked him or or something like that but instead they just panicked they didn't even know how to how to react to that so that's uh i mean it's just a little uh peek into that world but um that's something that uh definitely um having having to learn that and, and i do see that even even now um showing emotions and and things like that um it, it can be difficult because you closed you closed those those doors for so long but um one person had mentioned this this to me and i thought it was very interesting and she said you know i really like working with formers because with a lot of the former extremists she says it seems like you guys have so much more um love and compassion and empathy and stuff like that now than most or a lot of people in society and i thought whoa what do you what do you mean by that you know like it took me a minute and then and then i and then it was like well jeff i think it was because you guys shut off those emotions for so long now when you experience them you know you love stronger you have more compassion you have more uh, empathy for others and and i think that that's probably that there is probably a lot of truth to that i because i do feel a lot more things now than in those days when all that stuff was shut off in a lot of ways yeah okay jeff uh thank you for the interview any final words for today no uh, thanks for having me and if uh, any of the listeners want to reach out uh jeffscoop.com or um for beyond barriers beyondbarriersusa.org uh, reach out to us, check out the podcast, check out all that, all the stuff that we're doing and uh, anyone can change their lives. Um, and and uh, we're, 